Journalist Kenny Hsu has written a book, An Inconvenient Minority, which looks at the treatment of Asian Americans at the US education system and how the so-called woke policies of the left are damaging to American society. The book examines the effects of present-day policies such as eliminating standardised testing, racial preferencing of non-Asian minorities, the peddling of anti-Asian stereotypes and lumping of Asians into privileged categories. Kenny Shu, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Mike. Appreciate it. Look, you've got a new book uh, out soon. I think it's in about July, if I recall correctly. An Inconvenient yes. Minority, the Ivy League admissions cases and the attack on Asian American excellence. Tell me, why did you choose this title? Because Asian Americans in our culture today, and especially in America, and maybe in, in Australia too, there's this narrative right now with regards to race that says, if you're white, you're privileged. If you're black, you're oppressed. Well, where do Asian Americans fit? Because on one level, we're supposed to be a minority, meaning we're supposed to be victims of society. We're supposed to play the part of being oppressed by society. But as you can see with every statistic, Asian Americans inconvenience that narrative. We have higher incomes, higher educational statistics, lower rates of crime than than even white people in many cases in this country. And as a result of that, the left does not treat Asian Americans as a minority. In fact, in the cases of the Ivy Leagues, they treat Asian Americans worse than whites. Harvard University grades on three things. Academics, mm -hmm. makes sense. Extracurriculars, not too sure about that one, and a personality score. Tell us about this personality score. It's not really a personality at all, is it? It's quite racist. So, exactly, exactly. It's it's the Harvard's preferred method of discriminating against Asian Americans. So the statistics are all out, and according to every objective metric, Asian Americans have to get about 240 points higher than whites to have the same chance of admission as whites and about 440 points higher than blacks to have the same chance of admission to a, a school like Harvard University. And the way that they get away with this is in their rating system, they use this thing called a personality score. And the personality score is a entirely subjective evaluation. It's not backed up by any objective evidence that goes along with it. Basically, you come in and a Harvard interviewer um, uh, says, are you, it addresses things like, are you likable? Are you humor? Do you have humor? Um, do they see you as charismatic? And in all of these things, it's funny, Asian Americans score highest on academics, highest on extracurriculars, but for some reason score lowest on the personality score. And they use this metric to, uh, to, to really balance for races. Can you point to the most damaging policies and uh, long-term impacts on Asian Americans and U.S. society generally? Well, I have to say this. The use of the personality score is very, is very damaging, I think, to the Asian American mind and consciousness because, you know, we're used to these stereotypes that says, oh, we're test-taking robots with no personality and everything like that. And the funny thing about these statistics is actually... I digged into the data, uh, which is part of my book, uh, An Inconvenient Minority. I dig into the data and I show how 
all of the objective measures of so-called personality, like alumni interviews, teacher recommendations, Asians stack up well compared to whites and blacks and Hispanics. But when it comes to this final review process, they put all of these things together and they say, you're good, but you're not good enough. And that's the message that they put on Asian Americans to, to keep telling them, we're going to grade you on a different standard just because of the color of your skin. And because so many Asian Americans and so many immigrant parents you know, value prestige, value these Ivy League universities, the fact that Ivy League universities are doing this to Asian Americans causes many Asian Americans to doubt themselves, to feel bad, to, to, to actually feel justifiably frustrated about their place in society. It's uh, really sad that uh, excellence is uh, penalized. Um, I sort of think <clears throat> maybe there's a bit, of, um, a bit of jealousy there too. In Australia, we call it the, the tall poppy syndrome. And uh, we've just, right. just got to chop you down if you uh, succeed or are too successful or look like you'll be very successful. Now, does your book focus exclusively on the uh, U.S. education system or are there other areas where Asian Americans are facing new or overt discrimination? Well, it's interesting you bring up, is it just a U.S. phenomenon? I think I, I did an interview with a couple of people uh, in Australia, and I, I know that among some of your most elite universities, even in Australia, you know, the population of Asians, especially Chinese Australians in those universities is, you know, disproportionate to their population in the population. And, and I can see what happens is... If America, which is still the cultural center of the world, if America exports this kind of race ideology across the rest of the world to inspire this resentment against high achieving students and, and excellent people, people who can contribute to the country's culture of excellence, you know, that could have worldwide reverberating effects. You know, that could cause, um, you know, the left in many other in, in many other countries to have and house suspicion against Asian Americans. Suspicion against Asian Americans isn't new, um, but what Harvard University is doing is it's legitimizing it in the eyes of the left and the elite public. What about reaction from uh, various groups? Uh, for example, uh, the the academia. How are they feeling about this? Mm. So I talk about this in my book, In an Inconvenient Minority, and academia, which as we know, leans left, leans liberal, um, they feel a great sense of shame. They feel a great sense of guilt over their supposed role in, um, in, in perpetuating this exclusive privilege system. Because as we know, Harvard University and all of these Ivy League universities, they're sitting on piles and piles of cash. They are some of the most privileged places on earth to be in. And a lot of these academics feel great guilt about being in that system. And so what do they do? They use this race ideology as an attempt to salve their, their moral guilt they're, the guilt that they feel, um, they use race preferences and they say, oh, this is how we take care of black people. This is how we take care of Hispanic people. Where in reality, the, the statistics show that just creating victim classes and then affirmatively trying to put them into these elite universities where they're not qualified actually tends to have a lot of detrimental effects on these populations. A lot of these populations... Um, Blacks and Hispanics get discouraged. 
Um, they have lower graduation rates. They have higher dropout rates, higher rates of depression, tend to graduate at the lower end of their class. And so this entire program, this entire race preferences program, does not do much to help people and does a lot to hurt people. What about the media? You're in the media yourself with the Federalist, I think the <laughs> Daily Signal, so you, you obviously know all about censorship. What about, take out those two, uh, any other censorship being applied to yourself and, uh, and the book? So far, I'm very fortunate. I can't guarantee it so far. That's why me and my publisher, which I'm very grateful to work with, Diversion Books, they really specialize in getting the book to a variety of different outlets. That means we're not just going with Amazon. You know, we are pursuing all avenues. That's why I would encourage um, your viewers, if you guys are interested in buying the book, to buy it you know, at, a, at, an, at, a, at an indie bookstore like Brookline Brooks Smith or to get it at Walmart um, and everything like that. Um, that, that helps to, to temper down the expectations of just having just focusing too much on on big tech and and their censorship. What about yourself from the start of writing the book, researching, so researching it and writing it and thinking about it, how have your opinions changed from the the thought process of doing the book to now? Would have been some some minor changes or major changes within yourself? I hope that in, in terms of changes, I hope that America will realize that race as a category can is really not a is not really not a a, a proper way to negotiate yourself in American society anymore. Uh, race as a category increasingly means little in American society. More Americans are multiracial than ever. There's a higher rate of intermarriage than ever. There's a higher rate of third gen, fourth, fourth generation, Hispanic, Asian Americans who more or less are of the dominant American culture. And even black Americans, um, you try to put a black American in a country like Nigeria or in a country like South Africa, people will instantly recognize them for being an American. <laughs> um, the, the, the American identity, I think, overwhelms, uh, as it should, the supposed racial classes and racial narratives that elite institutions like Harvard and Yale and Princeton are trying to propagate. Sidebar question here, Your Honor. Uh, when Trump was in, in power, and now we have the Biden administration, uh, which was worse? I would say I would say the Trump administration did a couple of good things with regards to Asian Americans. First, they supported the lawsuit against Yale University, which is a similar lawsuit um, for discriminating against Asian Americans. And the the Yale investigation, as I reveal in my book, uh, an inconvenient minority, is is actually uh, a a huge investigation. At, at at that at the Trump administration Department of Justice found that Yale discriminates by race on all four uh, on all four aspects of their of their admissions process from the initial review to the group committee to the final review committee Yale uses a plus factor if you're black or hispanic and a minus factor if you're white or asian and they do that four times so it really compounds the process four times against Asian Americans. Imagine having that high of a penalty weighed against you. Um, so I think the Trump administration was good that they called it out. Um, the Biden administration reversed. I mean, the Biden administration dropped that lawsuit. 
They said it wasn't going to be a focus of them anymore. And yet they make all of these executive orders to say we want to combat anti-Asian racism and everything like that due to COVID. Um, it, it shows to me that the administration, the current administration, is only interested in defending Asian Americans when it fits their desired policy outcomes. It's going to be an exciting time for you, uh, July, uh, middle of summer for yes. you. And uh, so a barbecue, a good book to read, a couple of uh, wines to sip. What a, what a wonderful way to uh, while away the woes of the world. Uh, an inconvenient minority out in July. What's the exact date? July 13th, Mike. <laughs> Is that a Friday? Um, I think so, yes. <laughs> Friday the 13th. At least we're not suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> Kenny Shu, thank you very much. I appreciate it, Mike. Thank you. He's just about been everywhere around the US and overseas, ships, Australia, up and down the coast. Uh, in the US, worked just about on every radio station there is. Some were legal, some were not. Uh, one of the places that Kirk Clyde worked at was uh, at KDON, K-D-O-N, 101.5. Is that right? No, 102 and a half. How can I forget my station? 102 and a half. Right, right. 102.5 K-Dine. Yes. Right. Now, the, the, it's, what I noticed there in, in Salinas, it was a very strong Hispanic uh, element there. Oh, my. And yes. very important, very important for, uh, for the, uh, the area because they, pro- they provide great uh, resources in, in labour and, and so forth. Uh, tell us about your experiences in towns like Salinas where uh, Hispanic immigrants were pretty important to the local economy. Well, you know, first of all, you hear so much where people say, you know, especially years ago, it's America, learn English. And I think that's a great thing. Anybody coming to a new country should learn the native language. But, you know, let's look at the calendar. How long ago were we there in Salinas? Ah, it was 1985. Oh, my God. That I, I got this textbook. It's uh, said and done. That's in Spanish. This I bought at the community college, Hartnell Community College in Salinas, California, to try to become semi-proficient in Spanish. Now, about 2003, 2002, 2003, I went to uh, Pascual, which is in Michoacan, one of the 31 states of Mexico. And at that point, I went to a Spanish language school, and they said I was the worst student they ever had. I believe that. Well, you know, they said that most people come there with at least some limited knowledge. Obviously, this course from back in 1985, it didn't work out too well. But the point of this is Spanish is not that hard a language to learn. Actually, if you're a native Spanish speaker, it's much tougher to learn English because you've got things like three different versions of two spelled in different ways, three different versions of there all spelled different ways, all with different meanings. Not that tough in Spanish. I could actually a little better in Spanish than I can in English. But the bottom line is, it is hard to learn a language when you're an adult that is not your native tongue. And one of the things that amazes me, I live in a neighborhood that is predominantly Hispanic. I would say 70% of my neighbors here in East Las Vegas, English is not their native language. So it is a real challenge to try to know what people are saying in kind of adapt to the local customs and some of the local dialects. But the kids are amazing. You've got kids six, seven, eight years old, and what a lot of them did, and still do, but especially in the past, is you'll have kids that are seven, eight, nine, ten years old, and they are the translators 
for their parents because their parents, kind of like me, trying to learn Spanish, they're trying to learn English and having a tough time. But these kids, they are young children, and they go instantly. They go fluently so quickly from English to Spanish. It is really remarkable. That is a great skill. So people that want to, you know, America to be monolinguistic, what are you talking about? You know, when I worked in Europe, and you mentioned uh, working overseas, I was one of the last morning disc jockeys on pirate radio in the North Sea. And one of the reasons that I didn't get picked up as one of the original disc jockeys on MTV Europe was because of the old thing they said. You know, if you, if you speak three languages, you're trilingual. If you speak two languages, you're bilingual. If you speak one language, hey, you're an American. So <laughs> being able to speak other tongues is, is a great thing. And you talk about Salinas, it's an interesting town here, Monterey. A lot of people have heard of Monterey and Pebble Beach with the golf course. Pebble Beach and the classic cars of the Concord del Gans that they have every year. So you've got the incredibly wealthy coast where you've got Carmel with Clint Eastwood back in the day was the mayor. Houses there, shack is a million dollars. And then you go inland and that is the area that feeds America. It's simply remarkable. And what brought it home to me was back in the days, we're talking the mid-80s, you could take the agricultural tour of Monterey and Santa Cruz counties, and that was an amazing day. I don't think you ever took one, but I love to go on them. The local chambers of commerce would take you on them, and Monterey County produces an, an unbelievable amount of crops that feed the nation, and you see the people there working, mostly Hispanics from Mexico and other Central American nations, and the work they do, and I saw folks mushroom cutters. I wish I had pictures to show you of what it's like to cut mushrooms. Unbelievably hard work in these dark, dingy, dank places. And to pick strawberries. I went out there and tried to pick strawberries for an hour. And I'm like, this is when I was younger. You know, you can do the math back in the 80s. And it is literally back-breaking work. These people are incredibly skilled. They're incredibly talented. And they are in this necessity for America. You go back to the days of World War II and the nation was begging Hispanics, Mexicans, to come up and be with us. So you've got the crisis right now on the border. and There's no denying that it is a crisis. But compare the crises. Compare what's happening on the border to what's happening with COVID, say, in the United States right now. It is an issue that needs to be addressed. The youth that are coming across it, just imagine that for the parents. Saying conditions are so bad where you may be, El Salvador, Honduras, one of the other Central, Guatemala, one of the other Central American nations, conditions are so bad for you that you are willing to have your 10 or 12 or 14-year-old child go across into another country by themselves to try to improve their situation. I mean, that is hard for me to fathom. And what America needs to do, of course, is get those kids, if they do have sponsors or relatives, that are living here in the United States to get those kids to those people. And it's not an easy answer. But the bottom line is I like living in a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood because the community and the family and the family structure, to me, seems much better than in a predominantly, well, American neighborhood. So I have generally, I mean, not specifically, there is a drug cartel. There are issues in Mexico. But I was there right before the pandemic and can't wait to get back again. Got my Mexico map ready to go. And El Mapo, very important for Mexico. Surprisingly, it's 
hard to find good maps in Mexico. Got my Baja California map ready to go. So to me, I have generally very positive things to say about Mexico. And to give you an idea about why there is some degree of uh, corruption is because what does a police officer make in, in Mexico? Mike, take a guess what the average monthly salary in a U.S. dollars for a police officer would be in Mexico. Probably 500 That is exactly. You're reading my notes. You're reading my notes. <laughs> I'm looking over your shoulder. <laughs> that is exactly right. So you're looking at that, and the, the common nomenclature hasn't happened to me yet, but if you get pulled over for a traffic ticket in Mexico, your best bet is just to bribe the cop with 20 or $30. Is that ethical? Is that a good thing? I don't know. No, but if I gave Australian money, they'd arrest me. <laughs> you know, it's funny because Mexican money looks a lot like Australian money. It's made out of the same material. They're, they're worth the same, probably. <laughs> <laughs> it's about 22 to 1 on the pesos. 20, but it varies. I have to say the, the, uh, the Mexicans, uh, having lived in Salinas and in Lompoc, or Lompoc, and uh, I've been back so many times to the U.S. It's my second home, basically. Got to say, you know, first of all, one of the great things about America generally is the community, and the the rural areas in in California, with the uh, the, the the multiracial element, which you had Mexicans, you or Hispanics uh, from all parts of South America. You had the odd Aussie um, and uh, and and this great community, and it was just an amazing experience. And they they really do add so much to a community. And it's uh, but you've been to Mexico yourself many times, and that's pr- probably one of the things that that really interests you about about Mexico is how close they are, how much family means to them. And it really does. I mean, you know, you say same thing with the drug cartels. You got to be careful with those folks because they're family. Mm. But they're generally not going to mess with the gringos. I mm. mean, they're, as long as you stay out of their way, they will stay out of your way. It's a little unnerving sometimes to see the federales, you know, in their jeeps with their machine guns mounted on the back. But what do we have in the U.S.? It's not that much different. But you know, one of the things we're looking at seriously. We would have been, we would have been probably in final preparations for departure had Trump won the election. Mm. But we are still, as soon as the border opens up, and right now we still have this strange situation going on where you can fly to Mexico. There are no prohibitions. We have flights every day from Las Vegas to Guadalajara to Mexico City, but you can't drive unless you have a, a essential work obligation or an essential need for the uh, country. To drive to Mexico. So as soon as that border opens up, we are heading down there. We're going to do kind of a you know reconnaissance to scope out the situation and see if it is a reality that uh, we are going to go to Mexico because there are some very nice and very large expatriate communities in Mexico. Because the reality of the situation is, for what it would cost you maybe five thousand a month to live a modest lifestyle in the United States as a retiree. For that amount of money, you can live very, very well in Mexico. So there are issues, no doubt. But what we have, and I wanted to point this out, we're talking about radio earlier. And talk radio has been, oh, my gosh, one of the things we have here at the desert, Mike, is dust. So I picked up a pair of glasses, a dollar store glasses that have been out here. They're so covered with dust, I can't even see out of them. But I printed out the ratings 
from some talk radio stations in a, some mid-sized markets, for instance, Fort Myers, Florida, Greenville, South Carolina. The number one stations in those markets are talk stations. And what are they talking about? They're talking about the threat. They're talking about the danger. They're talking about the risks that the Mexicans pose to the United States. One of the many jobs that I do here in Las Vegas is occasionally go out and deliver packages, yes, for the big evil Amazon sometimes. And I've been right to the edge of the frontier, and they might still have a gated community on the edge of the frontier. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? What, why do you have a gated community of maybe 30 or 40 houses right here next to the mountains when there's nothing for the next 50, 60 miles? And I talked to a guy one day, and he says, well, you know, those Mexicans, they want to come out here and they're going to steal our furniture and their pickup trucks. That's why we have the gate. <laughs> and I'm thinking, are you nuts? I didn't say that. I'm not going to work in, but I'm thinking, this is the mentality that these talk radio stations are giving to so many Americans. They're feeding a narrative that these 12 year old kids streaming across the border are going to be a huge threat to the health and safety. No, what we have is we have. The Republicans, basically the white male, me, but I'm not one of them. That's you know by sure for I now if you see me here for sure before, that they want to maintain the power structure. And with more and more Hispanic, uh, more and more Hispanics, that control is waning. One thing you can do, if you want to see how this is, is take a look at any dating app. Any dating, straight, gay, doesn't matter. You know, BDSM, whatever your flavor. Take a look. And look at the people there here in Las Vegas. Way under 50% are Caucasian because that is what is happening. That is the melting mm. pot that we have of society. And some people simply do not want that to change. So these talk radio stations, what the, say they don't want to change. They get upset. They yell about it like the dog. These talk radio stations, they are doing all they can to pump the propaganda to make Mexicans seem old, so scary, so scary. You know, and I love them. I love Mexican food. I love bouncy houses. Do you know what a bouncy house yes, is? Yes, I do. Right? They're dangerous. They can blow away. Uh, well, these are huge bouncy houses. Yeah, but big ones still blow away. I guess they could, but, you know, you have to have a lot of wit. We have a four-meter rabbit for Easter. You can't really <laughs> see it, but it's at the edge of our property. So we have a four-meter rabbit. But, I mean, just the fun. The fun. We, I would call our neighborhood, to some people that live in those far distant gated communities, they would think our neighborhood scary. I yeah. think it's fun with culture and excitement, and mainly because it is, I'm the outcast, I'm the rare white guy in a Hispanic neighborhood here now, in Las Vegas. I have to, going back to the story about that guy and the gated community that was yeah. was convinced that the uh, Mexicans were going to steal his furniture. If he knew, right. if he knew that where you lived, and if he knew that you were surrounded by Mexicans, and if he yes. knew that your furniture wasn't stolen by now, yes. he probably thinks That's you right. have bad taste in furniture because they don't want <laughs> no. it. <laughs> that is exactly true. So, I mean, I just want to point out that Mexico gets a lot of bad press here in the United mm. States, but the thing it really does, and the other Central American countries. It's kind of like transgender situation mm. now. We have states that are trying. We have states that are trying to make it illegal for a physician to perform their best determined care of their patient. To make it illegal to give treatment 
to a minor who is transgender. Mm. Blows my mind. These mm. people clearly have not met transgender men, women, boys, and girls, mm. because they're some amazing people. Kind of the same situation with uh, these people that live in fear of, of, of Mexico. They clearly have not been to Mexico and seen the Mexicans and mm. seen what's there and seen the beauty. I mean, it's a big country. I mean, to take, I mean, it is a big, big country. 31 states in Mexico. Get one of these before you go if you're going to be doing some traveling. And it's just a remarkable place. I think that uh, there's a real possibility that uh, if we're still doing these, you know, say two years from now, it will be uh, from uh, Baja California, sir. Fantastic. Uh, this is our, our new segment. It's our National Geographic segment that Matt was really good. I think we'll use a green screen next time, Kirk. Kirk Clark <laughs> from Little Mexico in Las Vegas. That's almost coming to life. Kirk, thanks very much. Mexico City right here. There you go. And that's it for Asia Pacific Today. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Mike Ryan.